Hello, and welcome to the Orthopod. My name is Liam Fernando Canavan. I'm a medical student at the University of Melbourne, and this is a podcast where I'll take a history from experts in orthopaedic and musculoskeletal medicine. Dr. Julia Kirby is a graduate of the University of Adelaide Medical School and completed her orthopaedic training in Victoria and Tasmania before commencing practice as a consultant orthopaedic surgeon in 2020. Dr. Kirby has special interests in sports injury and orthopaedic trauma surgery, and prior to her orthopaedic training, she also completed a Master of Sports Medicine at the University of Queensland. Dr. Kirby has recently completed a fellowship in adult knee surgery with Orthosport Victoria and will soon be travelling to Dallas, Texas in the USA for a fellowship in paediatric sports orthopaedics at Texas Scottish Rite Hospital, but not before sitting down with me to tell me her story. Welcome to the Orthopod, Dr. Kirby. Thanks, Liam. So if you could go back to your time in the City of Churches when you were studying medicine, what was it like for you there and what drew you to orthopaedic surgery? So Adelaide Uni was a great place to study medicine. I went there as an undergrad. I moved there from Melbourne um, where I did my high school and um, so I ended up living there for six years. Uh, It was a fantastic opportunity because at that time it was a rather progressive medical school and I'm a fairly practical learner and there was a lot of focus on practical application of medicine rather than just didactic teaching. Um, So it really suited me very well. We went to clinical practice from our fourth year through to our sixth year and that was really when I found my interest in orthopaedics. Um, I did a five-week term in orthopaedics and rheumatology in fifth year and it was like something just clicked. I was looking at an x-ray and I was like, this makes a lot of sense and it was something that hadn't happened to me in other facets of medicine. It felt like I didn't have to work particularly hard at that stage to understand the concepts and the other thing was that uh, one of the surgeons let me use the mallet, which was really exciting. <laughs> and, you know, all those little things together meant that I ended up organising two electives at Dandenong doing orthopaedics to try and transition back to Melbourne. And that just solidified things. And from there, I ended up doing my first ever intern term was orthopaedics at the Alfred, um, which was a massive baptism of fire. But... Uh, Ultimately, I survived and I was still really interested, a little bit fatigued, but um, I think that for me just said, that's what I want to do. And and from there on, yeah, the rest is history, I guess. So soon after you completed your training and you're now consultant surgeon, the pandemic started. (laughs) So you not only had to contend with the challenge of that, but also the newfound responsibility of patients actually being yours. How has starting orthopaedic consultancy during the pandemic been for you? Look, it hasn't been without its challenges, but on the whole, I think I still had a really great year transition into practice. It it was always going to have its challenges. You know, for the first time, the patients are truly yours and you're responsible for them and you're responsible for their outcomes. And I think um, coupling that with transitioning to mostly online forums um, and remote sort of interactions with colleagues was a challenge. One of the difficulties for me was the isolation that was involved. The the Austin where I've been working, one of the things that drew me to the Austin was its collegiate nature and, and the collaborative sort of interactions you have with allied health, nursing staff, other surgeons and the support networks. So It was a very interesting year in the sense that we were doing everything via correspondence 
a lot of the time the other surgeons weren't even on site and so it was really just me running the fracture clinic on the ground doing a lot of on-call. So from that point of view it was challenging but on the flip side with the cancellation of elective surgery I was able to develop and implement with the help of with collaboration with the physiotherapists a virtual fracture clinic at the Austin which um, was modelled off the Royal Melbourne Virtual Fracture Clinic. And, yeah, we ran a pilot um, in the second half of last year and now it's continued on this year. So um, that's something, you know, really positive that came out of the increased use of telehealth to try and help offload our fracture clinic there. So that was really – that was enjoyable. (laughs) Was it as simple as you're a final-year advanced trainee surgeon on Friday and then on Monday you're a consultant? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. Um, And yeah, my first case was an ACL reconstruction, um, which is not quite the first case I was looking for. You sort of want something a little bit easier to cut your teeth on. But um, but look, yeah, it was it was pretty much that you just walk through the door and suddenly your name's on the sticker and it's real. Wow. Well, you mentioned ACL and you've just completed a fellowship in adult knee surgery at Orthosport Victoria with Professor Julian Feller. And Professor Feller is one of Australia's most prominent knee surgeons and in the area of ACL reconstruction, he's recognised internationally. How did doing a fellowship help your interest in sports orthopaedics? Fellowships are really integral part of our training. For me, I've always been interested in sports medicine and sports orthopaedics and and that's how I sort of uh, did the masters. But ultimately, you just, you learn a lot in your training about ACL reconstruction. You learn a lot in your training about you know, things to do with the meniscus, but there's a lot outside of that that's to do with sports medicine and knee surgery that you just don't get in um, your run-of-the-mill training. So having a fellowship gives you a a greater insight into people who are really good and really sub-specialised in their area, doing things every day. And for me, that was one really big benefit. The other benefit was seeing them do tricky cases, you know, troubleshooting complex situations, because that's the stuff that when you're on your own, you want to have seen someone else do it or know how they navigate that particular problem. So that was one way that was really affirming of my interest in sports, but also, um, yeah, really helpful to take forward in my practice. The other thing is doing a local fellowship. So fellowships, we often go overseas. It's an opportunity to travel, and that's why I'm heading over to Dallas but having a local fellowship gives you really great insight into the private health system because ultimately our training's public and most of us will end up doing private practice um, and you just it's it's a big learning curve if you haven't had a good look into it so it's also given me a nice local network. Yeah I mean specifically you know you said you learn about sort of subspecialties and orthopedics has heaps of those there's all different types it's not just fractures yeah you know with ACLs we've we've talked before I had the pleasure of watching you do an ACL it was fantastic you're obviously very skilled you you, you mentioned things like tenodesis yeah what are some of the sort of little things that you learned about doing ACL reconstructions that perhaps you didn't learn in your formal training as an orthopedic surgeon I think one of the main things I learned is efficiency and how to streamline the processes so that the operation itself goes more smoothly a lot of things about decision making in surgical intervention that's a really interesting thing to think about because when you get presented with a patient who's got an ACL rupture they might also have a meniscal tear they might also have some hypermobility or some other factor that makes you concerned about their risk of re-rupture so 
picking the right graft, there's multiple graft choices. So quads, patella tendon, hamstrings, hamstrings being the most common. You know, do I do a tenodesis? Um, you know, do I do a meniscal repair? Do I do that first? So there's a lot of um, intricacies to the decision making. And I think that was really useful. And that's something I got out of working with the four surgeons because they're so experienced. They've, all, they've got a reason why they do everything. Mm. And it was really interesting to work with them and to get an idea of what their decision-making process is. So when I'm deciding with the patient sitting in front of me, I have a much clearer picture of, you know, how I would proceed. Yeah, so, I mean, Orthosport Victoria have built a reputation as one of Australia's premier surgical options for elite athletes, and anyone who's visited their rooms at Epworth, Richmond, are greeted by walls of sporting memorabilia full of famous athletes. Is the surgical management of elite athletes any different to your average weekend warrior? So in some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. I think, technically speaking, the operations we perform are always the same with slight variations. So, you know, the operation you're going to do, if you're just going to do an ACL reconstruction, the actual surgical technique is the same. But there's certain considerations, particularly with elite athletes, that you would take in. One of those is the rate of re-rupture. So we know in the under-20 age group, the rate of re-rupture is huge. Um, so it's upwards, you know, 20 to 30%. Doing a tenodesis in those patients would reduce that risk by approximately 50%. And the difficulty is there's sort of, you know, there's various papers. There's some stuff out of Canada, the stability study. Um, you know, there's other papers that have come out of orthosport. So it's, it's interesting. We try and do everything we can to minimise that risk. Um, and when you're an elite athlete, that adds an, another element. So you may be more inclined to do a tenodesis on an elite athlete as opposed to a weekend warrior who is, let's say, the 30 AFL footy player versus weekend warrior. You're probably more likely to do a tenodesis on that patient. The other consideration, I suppose, is timing and the desire to return to play. So if it's a patient who doesn't have an ACL rupture that potentially just has meniscal tear that needs a debridement or repair, if their team is not going to make the finals, you might decide to go in now, um, you know, in the AFL footy season. If they're not going to make the finals, you might decide to go in now so that they can have enough time to rehab and recover before pre-season and the next season. ACL rupture is a bit different because once it's gone, it's gone. It wouldn't be advisable to play on an ACL deficient knee. So typically we just try and expedite that as quickly as possible and ideally get them ready for pre-season. Does it help you knowing that that patient is going to have round-the-clock physio, they're, they're well supported by their sporting club? Yeah, look, it's useful to have good support networks, absolutely, but that can also be a pressure point for them sort of rushing their rehab. Some patients do achieve early return to sport, um, but there's no guarantees. So it's essentially, I think, about communication and keeping the expectations realistic. Well, you know, we're really going deep into into sports medicine here and, and you've done a master's in sports medicine. What was, you know, what was that about? Why did you do that? So I've always had an interest in sports orthopaedics and at the time I was trying to get on the training program for orthopaedics and there's a lot of things that you need to do to improve your chances and to make your CV look impressive. So at that time I was thinking I should do a master's in order to help with that. But I really wanted to do a master's in an area that I was interested in that would actually be really useful for me from an academic point of view. Um, so I looked into options and so I did this by a correspondence. It was a coursework master's through the University of Queensland. 
I sort of expedited the first six months and then took some time off from it. And then I actually got on the training program before I'd completed it. So um, luckily I had enough time to sort of finish it off in the final six months before I started training, um, which was really good because it's really gave me a nice solid foundation for what I wanted to then pursue through training so it was mostly I did a bit of biostatistics which was helpful with my research component Um, and then a lot of uh, writing sort of review papers on different topics in sports medicine um, which was yeah it was great. Had you ever thought about specialising in I know you got into the training program but had you had you ever thought about sports and exercise medicine instead of orthopaedics? No to be honest it wasn't so much my interest my I'm a really practical person. I like working with my hands. So I've always wanted to do surgery um, since I first got exposure to it in medical school. Um, So for me, I think I would have been too frustrated that I couldn't operate on the patients. (laughs) So I actually, my backup plan, if I didn't get on the training program, was um, to go and do an apprenticeship, carpentry or cabinet making. Yeah, okay. I mean, do you have, you know, I, I too, I also like that sort of stuff. Um, yeah. You know, have you got a background in doing that? Did you do like that sort of stuff in high school at all? No. Like woodworking <laughs> no. or anything? Like- no, I didn't actually. Um, so recently I've done a course in um, woodwork or, um, you know, furniture making, yeah. um, which was oh, after lockdown two, before lockdown three. And uh, yeah, so that was fantastic. But unfortunately, I, I live an apartment life at the moment, not really conducive to making furniture. Yeah. Um, but it's always something I've been interested in. And I think that all goes hand in hand with the practical application of orthopedics. Yeah. Um, and my background before that was that I really wanted to do, when I was in high school, I wanted to do architecture. My mum's an art teacher and uh, we had a lot of... Uh, influence from that point of view growing up um so a lot of craft a lot of you know making things doing things like that really practical things so i think that's where that developed yeah okay <laughs> or maybe you can flog one of the drills from the hospital and do some work at home yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you're about to head over to the states to do a pediatric sports orthopedic mm. fellowship what is pediatric sports orthopedics and what did you have to do to be accepted for a fellowship in the USA? Because I know you've had a little bit of trouble getting there. <laughs> so um, pediatric sports orthopedics is basically the care of young patients up to the age of 18 who have musculoskeletal injury. It is all ages of paediatrics, but in general, it's when they start to engage in sports. So um, from primary school up, um, so not really young kids typically. They would more be managed by your general paediatric surgeons or paediatric orthopedic surgeons. Um, Your older children who engage with sports, uh, it could be any joint. It's it's usually ligament or cartilage-based pathologies, so knee shoulder foot and ankle hips and it encompasses anything that you might encounter in a in an active engagement so uh, what I'll be doing over there will be a bit of everything so my interest is quite focused on knee but I will be doing a bit of shoulder and hip over there as well and that may change my perspective when I come back but we'll see but a lot of work with preservation of joints um, reconstruction of cartilage meniscus they do do meniscal transplants over in the US using allograft which is you know donor tissues Um, the other thing they use a lot in the US which we don't use a lot here is donor tissue for ACL reconstruction as well Um, so it's just going to give a different perspective for me as well as far as getting to the US uh, there's a lot (laughs) and I won't sugarcoat it but um, you have to sit the the medical examinations they sit in their medical school so to any med student who has any desire to work in the US in the future the ideal time to sit that 
is when you're in med school or when you're an intern. <laughs> I waited until I was about 12 months before sitting my exit exams for the orthopedic training program. So it was about 10 years after I finished medical school and I was trying to navigate renal physiology and pharmacology and all of those things <laughs> at the same time as studying for my final uh, orthopedic exams. So Look, it wasn't ideal timing-wise, but we got there. And um, and then so and then there's a match process to get fellowships. So in the US, they have a lot of they have accredited and non-accredited fellowships. So the US trainees need to do the accredited ones because it's really it's they can't get their board certification without it. Whereas for us, it's not so important for it to be accredited. So the plan, so my plan was to apply broadly and I applied for both accredited and non-accredited positions and I interviewed for both um, and I've ended up taking a non-accredited position because it was a better position for me but ultimately the accredited positions go through a match which is similar, I don't know if it's still the PMCV here in Victoria but it, the intern match, it's a similar process. So they, they rank you, you rank them and then you get matched. Um, you have to travel to the US for the interviews, there's no option of um, interview via correspondence. Even during the pandemic? So yeah, I, luckily I travelled January 2020 to the US for my interviews, so probably when the first few cases of COVID were touching down, um, and I made it back just in time. So I ended up over there for five days to interview, and then straight back to work here <laughs> for my final few weeks as a registrar. Yeah. Um, and then yeah, and then there's visa issues, pandemic related issues, but I'm actually flying out next Saturday, so that's going to be good. <laughs> right, just in time to miss the bombers get knocked out of the finals. Oh, that's rough. <laughs> <laughs> so <that> true. <laughs> so moving from sports ortho to another one of your interests, trauma surgery. What does your day-to-day role as a consultant orthopedic trauma surgeon at the Austin involve? So the trauma role um, is a year-long role that's offered for a first-year consultant. So I did that for the full year last year. The day-to-day role is essentially being the connection between the registrar group and the rest of the consultant body. It's running trauma lists, so twice-weekly trauma lists. You manage the fracture clinic, um, so in person you're in there to provide support to the registrars. Uh, You have an elective list that you get to do once a week, which helps to sort of keep your your other subspecialty interests alive. And then, yeah, really just coordinating, navigating and, sorry, coordinating um, and doing on call and managing sort of the acute setting patients from admission to discharge. I've sort of already asked you a little bit about being a consultant, but did mm. you find taking on the role of a consultant meant you had more hours or less hours and more stress? Yeah, so it was yeah, it was a big change from being a registrar. It was definitely less hours. It was funny because as a registrar, you just work these really huge hours. Um, and I got my contract for my consultant job, and it said forty hours a week. And I thought that was point eight. It's not. It's full time. <laughs> so I was a bit surprised. I had one of my friends who works in a non-medical industry was like, that's full time. And I'm like, oh, okay, good. So I had a full day off every week, which was amazing. But it is definitely more stress. And I filled that full day preparing for cases and <laughs> getting organised and doing all those things that I hadn't had to do as, a, <laughs> as much as a registrar. Um, right, okay. Yeah. We'll just we'll move on to some sort of more technical questions about trauma surgery. So with an ageing population and 14% of Australians having osteoporosis, the government spends about $750 million a year on hip fracture care, which is a massive burden. 
From your perspective as an orthopaedic trauma surgeon, why are hip fractures, especially to the neck of the femur, such a big burden in terms of morbidity and mortality? I think the patient cohort that we see with our neck of femur fractures, you know, there's a really small subset of those patients who are young, high energy trauma, but the majority are patients who have some problem with bone pathology. So whether that's osteoporosis or just age-related change. And these patients are typically patients who have other complex issues. There are other patients in nursing homes who have quite significant, you know, advanced dementia or they've got multiple comorbidities and already at baseline they're high-risk patients. So we are advocating for operations on patients who otherwise wouldn't be offered an elective surgery. So that's one complexity. So the interplay between that and then navigating, so what is the best management for these patients? When you break your hip, if you have an operation, you have a 20 to 30% mortality at one year. But if you don't do an operation, it's 70 plus percent. So really what we're offering here is a palliative procedure, a pain relieving procedure, particularly in the older age group and those patients who otherwise wouldn't usually be fit for an operation. So I think that's really why it is. Um, These patients also often require protracted stays, rehab, particularly if they've previously been at home with family supports, they'll need extended periods of rehab. So that does put stress on the resources. And even after all of that, 20 to 30 percent of those patients may not survive so it's challenging um, but at the end of the day I think it's a humane approach to be looking after these patients and fixing these patients because it really does drastically improve their pain relief Um, it enables them to be nursed appropriately Um, so typically we would say that unless the patient has a life expectancy of less than a week you offer them an operation of having you know, a frank discussion with either the patient or their family next of kin about their potential outcome. But it's the only way that you'll get them back on their feet. If you don't operate, you've committed them to, to bed. Mm. Are there technical challenges to these sorts of patients when you have to repair the fracture? Yeah, absolutely. So the patient often, as I mentioned before, has underlying either osteoporosis or osteopenia, they have soft bone, their tissues aren't as good um, and there's potential for intraoperative complications. So besides the what may seem obvious, the anaesthetic risk with the medical patient, you know, the medical side of the patients, there's really technical challenges with putting a half hip replacement in or hemiarthroplasty for a neck of femur fracture. You can fracture the rest of the femur if you're not careful. You know, there's certain things you would do differently. The other thing when we're doing a hemiarthroplasty, we put cement in the canal and putting pressure on that can push fat into the system, which can cause something called a fat embolus. In a young, healthy patient getting a total hip replacement, I would pressurise that cement because we want that hip replacement to last 20, 30 years. In an elderly patient who maybe is 90 with underlying heart and lung conditions, if you pressurise that cement, it could cause them to have an arrest on table. So I don't pressurise in that setting. I just am gentle because at the end of the day, that is a pain-relieving operation. Even without pressurisation, the cement mantle will last long enough for what this patient requires and the demands they're going to put through it. So there's just these certain things that you have to think about when managing these patients. And it's uh, it's not straightforward, but I think it's a really important part of our trauma management. Another common admission to hospital for any injury is, is generally is orthopaedic injury. And in the Victorian Orthopaedic Trauma Outcome Registry, 30% of the patients in that data set were from road trauma. And many of these people are pedestrians, cyclists or motorcyclists. 
How does an orthopaedic trauma surgeon manage patients with multiple fractures following road trauma? So there's, it really depends on the character of the fractures, but also their other injuries. Um, when you have a patient who's multiply injured, you worry about them having head, neck or chest trauma or abdominal trauma. Um, and it's really important that you have a collaborative approach. If you're in a trauma service, which I don't currently work in, but I have had some experience in through my training, you'd be working with general surgeons who specialise in trauma to help you with the management of the patient globally. At somewhere like the Austin, um, for these patients, we, we work with the general surgeons um, and they would manage the what we call the primary survey, which is where we make sure that the airway breathing, circulation, everything is okay. We have to look and see whether they've got any neck trauma or head trauma, lung trauma. And then from my point of view, that's when we would come in and, and we'd manage the fractures. So if the patient's got open fractures, so with the communication with the outside world, then that's that's quite emergent. Um, so I would splint all of that in the emergency department and then organise to take the patient to theatre, as opposed to if they're all closed, potentially you can splint everything, but it really depends on the severity. A big femur fracture or um, you know a long bone fracture can cause a lot of bleeding and that can be really significant. So you may do what's called damage control orthopaedics, and this is a concept that's not new. It's, it's essentially where you would go in and you temporise everything. So that often involves putting frames on, so external fixatives, to stabilise everything, clean up any wounds. Then you can stabilise the patient if they've got chest problems or head trauma. And once they're safe, you can go back and do your definitive fixation. Because if someone has a, a chest trauma, if they've got a pneumothorax or a rib fracture, uh, you know, multiple rib fractures or a flail chest, and you go and do a nail for a femur fracture... The same thing can happen with the hip that I talked about where you can push the fat into the system and it can make them worse. So it's just, yeah, you just have to be thinking and you have to use this collaborative approach with your other specialties in the hospital. So it's, it's really, and it's like most things in surgery, it's, an, it's, it's a, a team. It's a team event, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So lastly, each year the Australian Orthopaedic Association's Orthopaedic Women's Link run the OWL essay competition for female medical students, interns and pre-vocational doctors who are not yet on the orthopaedic training program. So the competition's running for all of August and the topic this year is give a girl a hammer. What would you do if I gave you a hammer? Well, Liam, it depends on the context. <laughs> There's lots of, uh, lots of things that I could do with a hammer um, and I think I already alluded to it earlier that I've got quite an interest in using hammers outside of my professional life. Um, so I think if you gave me a hammer or a mallet, as it would be, I'd get a chisel I make some nice joinery, <laughs> build some furniture. If I'm in a professional setting, I could be putting a hip replacement in, I could be hitting a femoral nail in, or I could be doing something fine like you watched me do the other day, which is where I'm taking a bit of bone out for my lateral extra-articular tenodesis. Thanks so much for your time today, Julie. I got a lot out of talking to you. Thanks, Liam. Cheers. Thank you for listening to The Orthopod. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram by the handle at SomaGradGroup or on our website, somagradgroup.com. See you in the next episode.